0: Hey guys, welcome to The Han Jan Ran Show, the audacious podcast by Hannah Rankin. Hey everyone, welcome to the show this week, thank you for tuning in again. It is excruciatingly hot in London and as you know, Brits... help but moan about the heat and i got to say that I've been one of them so anyone that's listening in England I hope you're keeping cool and well hydrated as always I just got to do a little check-in and ask for three little favours will you subscribe rate and review the show I'd love to hear what you think thus far and will you send it to a friend if you're enjoying it and then finally, come give me a wave, say hello. I'm at a handjamran on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I'm a bit useless in that space, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, come say hello. It'd be lovely to hear back from you. So this week's episode is a really insightful conversation. Not that they're all not, but I was uh, taught a lot in this conversation. Um, an amazing young woman called Disha took me through her role as a trend forecaster in the fashion, beauty and lifestyle sectors. So we talked about what her journey was to end up in a position where she can forecast trends, which I found super interesting because the mind boggles. Um, And she went into a lot of detail around the beauty industry in particular and explains Well, we kind of talked about brands that are doing it well and also brands that are doing it poorly. And I think with the revival of the resurgence of attention on the Black Lives Matter movement um, during this period of reflection and time to pause thanks to COVID has really shed a light on brands that are doing a lot of tokenistic output and those that have real integrity and a holistic attitude when it comes to visibility and representation. Anyway, I'm not going to speak any longer because Deisha is far more well-equipped to talk on this subject than I, so I will hand over to the rest of the episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Deesha. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you?
1: I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Me too. There's so much for us to get into. So, for the beginning, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. So, um, I am originally from Hong Kong um, and I moved to the UK About, well, this September, it'll be seven years ago. And I am a beauty, fashion, lifestyle expert, and I work in trend forecasting. And I was a journalist previous to that. But um, now I actually run my own creative agency called Concrete.
0: So you do trend forecasting in the beauty, fashion, and lifestyle sphere. And what? how did you end up getting to a position that you can forecast trends? <laughs> what was the background that brought you to this position?
1: That's a, That's a really good question. So I started working in the kind of fashion industry in Hong Kong 10 years ago for like an online lifestyle magazine and I started doing styling and writing articles about that and going to trade shows and kind of looking at the industry from that perspective and then um my editor basically was like to me well you can't be like a one-trick pony like you can't only do fashion forever Mm. so then I started getting more into beauty and wellness and lifestyle and that's kind of how I came into this sphere. So it was quite like an organic move from being, you know, journalist to expert. And what did you study? So I studied sociology um, for my first degree and then my second degree I did magazine journalism.
0: I'm so jealous of your sociology degree. I really it's on my bucket list to, to get one of those before I die. I'm so interested, I actually, my best friend in Sydney, um, where I used to live, did yeah. a sociology degree while I was there and I she like snuck me into some of her lectures on like um, gender uh, spectrums and um, what else did we do? I went to one about polyamory and monogamy and like the different, uh, I guess, relationship and love structures within society today. It was so interesting. I just love everything that that kind of covers. And what did that, like, why did you choose sociology and what did that spark in you?
1: Well, it's actually really interesting. So it's kind of like, um, how do I explain this? So basically, if you live in Asia, they're about, and this is very stereotypical, but very true, they're only about few routes that people take. So you either do medicine law or business more or less and I was kind of (laughs) and I was kind of conforming like oh I'm going to do a business degree and I looked into the modules and I honestly didn't find them super interesting to like want to study for like three years um, Mm. at uni and then I started looking at other courses and then you know sociology the modules that I saw were super interesting and the topics were really current and I kind of wanted to do something that touched on things things that were current and relevant for now and that were quite broad so I could you know talk about race and I could talk about you know sustainability in the environment but at the same time Mm. you talk about gender so it was quite varied and that's why I really really wanted to do it.
0: Well I guess that gave you a really good um, foundation to then be aware and cognizant of the shifts in society that are happening around you and as those Change and um evolve and develop, and where I guess there's holes in those movements, and where they are making positive change, so then you went on to do your master's in trend forecasting. I mean, I'm gonna be honest while I do know a little bit about sociology, I know nothing about trend forecasting. <laughs> um I like to think that I have my finger on the pulse to a degree to sort of know what like the latest zeitgeist is and I guess, the consensus of people in my generation, at least, but I wouldn't even have the foggiest of where to begin with actual, you know, widespread trends emerging before like to acknowledge that they're, or spot that they're emerging before they do, how well, like, how do you do that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Trade secrets, <Yeah. laughs> I'm kidding, um, basically I was actually earlier today trying to like explain this to a friend of mine who's also a colleague, like how I actually pick up on trends, so I was explaining it like this, so if I do something on China for example, right, I will look at, you know, what consumer groups are emerging from there, like what media they're consuming, what kind of products they're buying. Um, as well as looking at their kind of cultural heritage so it's Mm -hmm. kind of bringing all of that together to then be able to say okay this is the kind of beauty product they'd want so I was looking at a huge rise in locality and then I thought okay so then made in China would be a big thing that then I would want to spotlight but then it would be less of that kind of common international brand influence that people would see and bring that in and then think about how, you know, deeply rooted, you know, people in China are to their actual culture and bringing that in as like another point that would kind of help with like product development and things like that.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So do you forecast
1: internationally? Yes, I do forecast internationally, which is great
0: that's wow that's incredible and must be so interesting to like deep dive into so many different cultures
1: oh yeah definitely I mean the the kind of variations that you see are so vast and I guess you know when I do things with Asia because I'm from there for me it's a lot easier to understand it you know Um, whereas when I do things with other cultures I always have to like you know, triple check with experts in the region to make sure that I'm saying things that are right, that I'm not culturally appropriating their culture and making mm. sure that everything I'm saying is correct because I wouldn't want to give the wrong advice or, you know, have something come through that just isn't authentic or genuine either.
0: Yeah, so what's really springing to mind as an example where that all failed is when Dolce & Gabbana, I think it was like two years ago now, had there had a campaign with a Chinese model eating spaghetti with chopsticks do you remember this
1: yes I remember it very very vividly it was a disaster I think I was literally in shock for so like was
0: I. I was funnily enough doing the PR for Dr. Gimbana at the
1: time <laughs> oh my gosh no it was an absolute train wreck I mean I did not understand why there had to be chopsticks when she was eating the pizza and like eating yeah, pasta I mean it was I think the China show got cancelled after that didn't it because it was just it disaster. did they were about
0: to do a um like a resort show but I think what made it 10 times worse was not acknowledging the mistake that was made like I've really been talking about this especially with my white community because I am white um mm-hmm about I guess the process of like acknowledging where we have made mistakes in the past and being humble enough to hold your hands up and then to learn and to commit to do better so I think there's been quite a few examples I mean that was one really strong example where they they then didn't apologize they um defended themselves and they were quite vicious in their um rhetoric towards their Chinese consumer base which is huge by the way it is <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a really bad business move I um, know
1: it really was especially because before that like Dolce & Gabbana was like one of the favorite brands out there. oh yeah
0: yeah there's a huge Asian um community in Australia and that's where I was at the time um and I know speaking to some of their sort of flagship stores in Oz like a huge percentage and it, and also not just um, a huge percentage of their customer base was Asian or well, specifically Chinese, but um, their like big spenders were predominantly Chinese as well. So, I mean, it was very interesting to see how that then trickled down to the shoppers. Um, but I guess at the moment we're seeing a lot of, well, we're seeing a lot of brands being called out, yeah. which I think is personally, I'm all for, um, but we're seeing such a range of reactions to those call-outs. Like, not everyone is holding their hands up and and willing to do the unlearning, as as I call it. Um, A lot of them are sort of just trying to be quiet for a moment and then continue business as usual. Um, So what... I guess what I'm really interested in to, to talk to you about is what you're doing today and how you feel that that sort of trend forecasting and um, I guess, you know, you and I are both really invested in representation in the beauty industry and like the lack of diversity and, and in fashion, the lack of diversity that there is. And I suppose you can probably speak on this better than I, but um, what that, what visibility means when it's done right and what lack of visibility means to communities uh of black people and people of color what like the damaging effects of that
1: is so um i am indian ethnically um, and i did grow up in hong kong for my whole life and um with my kind of background it's it's very kind of mixed so like my mom spent majority of her life in america as well so i have that kind of influence <laughs> i just feel like you know the first place i think to start would definitely be looking at you know the campaigns that come out i mean if we think about it like so many kind of campaigns and even the media and press in general, like I just know that from personal experience and I, um, I contributed to a research paper about this quite recently about diversity in the media in the UK and it was like when i was asked about you know how i feel that the indian community is being represented i was completely honest in saying that we were completely othered to the fact that like you know the only time someone would mention someone indian was if they were doing something really you know cool and different which is great and I'm happy about that but at the same time it wasn't like you know it was only one convention of an extreme and it wasn't you know normal everyday people mm. which is quite interesting you too. have like
0: almost the most international background like combined in one person that I've yeah. ever heard of <laughs> and so, I re- so many- references
1: yeah and I went to a German school as well so that's even more complex that's like an extra layer on top of all of yeah. <laughs> <I love> that. that. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a little bit of everywhere that I kind of grew up yeah. with around me which is which was great um so
0: what was the visibility like or the representation like in Hong Kong
1: I mean, to be completely honest, really terrible, so mm. which is bizarre because Hong Kong's such a multicultural place, and everybody's from everywhere, but you know growing up their perception of beauty was very different, like it was only like it literally media campaigns everywhere you'd see it only be white people, Chinese people, or Eurasian people, and that was kind mm. of your standard of being beautiful. So I just felt really kind of underrepresented and, you know, kind of underseen in like a mainstream way. So like even at school, for example, and I mean, I was at the same school from the age of three to 18. So huge, huge portion of my life. And like, I can remember that there were about 20 South Asian or Indian people, max, and over half of them were either relatives or family friends. So it was like also just not being able to see beyond that sphere. So just, you'd kind of feel like you wouldn't belong. And it was like, I spent a lot of time in denial about looking the way that I do because it wasn't conventionally beautiful and it wasn't what I was seeing. And as I got older, that didn't really change. So, um, you know, we would see so many ads about skin whitening as well, which was, you know, insane. It was like you would go to the movie cinema and right before a movie would play, there was like an advert for this brand called Fankel House. And um, the slogan was less is more. And every single time you went, the advert was about this woman wanting to lighten her skin. And it wasn't even the, you know, kind of, you know, media I was seeing in Hong Kong, like we would subscribe to Indian channels and on there like fair and lovely ads all the time all the actresses that you would kind of see would all be really fair. And it, it, you know, it did affect me to the point that I was so, and I know this sounds ridiculous now, but I was so paranoid about getting darker that when I went to the beach, I would literally have my bathing suit underneath. But on top of that, I would kind of wear like a massive t-shirt, a massive hat, Mm. huge sunglasses, like either culottes or shorts. And until I wanted to swim, I would then take all of that off and be just in my bathing suit.
0: Mm, Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's so damaging when you've got the same thread coming at you from all angles. And it's such a narrow vision of what is beautiful. And I was thinking about it over the weekend, like that phrase, we cannot be what we cannot see. And if you're not seeing women or people that look like you around you as you're going through those really formative years of developing your own sense of self your own self-identity your own understanding of your position in the world I I can't even imagine I mean how damaging that is and yeah it's a very regretful um thing that you had to go through and yeah, I hope that we can do better from here on.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it got to the point where I couldn't, I mean, this sounds ridiculous when I say it now, but like when I go shopping for my friends and we'd go to like look for makeup, like I could never buy anything from a drugstore. Like I was convinced for years, like literally until I moved to the UK that Maybelline only had like three to four shades of a really, really pale foundation and concealer And because that's literally all they had. And like, even when I went to kind of the only place I could go to was like luxury department stores that are like self Korea's equivalent. And that's the only place where you could get diverse ranges of makeup. And, But it was interesting there too because it wasn't actually that diverse like they would offer um you know free lessons at the concierge um to help you kind of apply makeup so my friends and I would go there once a week to kind of get a lesson learn how to put on makeup because you know that was like a I wanted to be as good as my mom because she trained in like Uh esthetician and things like that and my sister amazing as well so I wanted to be as good as them so I would literally go try on these lessons but I literally had orange eye bags for years because they couldn't match my concealer shade so I would literally have orange eye bags and I mean it was so unattractive but it was you know all that was there but then with my other friends who would go with me you know they would know how to cater to their eye shape and you know what best colors you know would work for them but for me it was always kind of a bit like oh yeah orange eye bags
0: (laughs) it sounds like the more luxury end of the market was sort of trying to tap into that diverse offering um in their products more so than the actual like accessible end of the market which is really problematic in itself because it means that there's only a certain budget that can Um, be involved in in buying different shades of concealer or foundation and so it's really um, makes it more exclusive as well on a on a intersection of reasons Um, and have you found that at the moment that um, the brands that are doing better in terms of diversity are the more luxury brands or do you feel that it's a bit more um, evenly spread across A range of price points at at this point
1: I mean it's interesting that you say that because I think that it it is definitely a mix but it was definitely luxury that started it off but then I've also seen so many things fail from like a high street perspective like Revlon launched Flesh beauty which was meant to be you know absolutely amazing like I remember I covered it at the time because I thought it was going to be you know incredible they were like yes lipsticks concealers foundations like blushes everything for you know all these Um, all these different shades for people of color but at the end of the day they recently just got called out because their staff wasn't actually diverse enough they weren't able to keep up with the market and it just completely failed as well on so many levels so I think the high street Mm -hmm. is trying but I think there are a lot of kind of institutionalized changes that definitely need to be made i mean on the education front is one area but also on the people you hire or you know actually interacting with the people who you're creating products for like you can't just create something for you know a person of color without actually having someone on board or doing things with the actual people otherwise you're just not going to get it right
0: such a great great point and kind of brings me back to a question I asked a while ago and then I completely pulled you off track so (laughs) I guess to me that's an example of through products these companies are guilty of tokenism so they tokenistically presented what appeared to be on the surface a diverse product offering but if you dig a little deeper into the actual company structure, you find that it's completely whitewashed still. There's not inclusion and representation within the workforce. And so they're really ticking a box and just trying to keep up with what they feel is a trend rather than really adhering to the needs of a diverse spectrum of society. And I mean I mean it's a real like I guess it's an interesting one because if you're coming from it um coming to it from the perspective of equality seeking to provide for uh you know a wide range of different consumers then hopefully there's a bit of more foresight and a bit more um you know acknowledgement within the structure too but if you're coming from it to it from a business perspective you know you are missing out on a huge potential Uh, market if you don't do it well so there's like I feel like there's different um agendas that companies have and I guess that shows when the cookie crumbles so to speak um but at the same time it's it's advantageous for the companies to do it well
1: yeah definitely I just think that like you know with companies they need to remember that you know people you know they're doing things for people and the beauty industry is hugely responsible for representing you know what you think of yourself and how you feel so you know they need to kind of carry this through end to end and they need to kind of do this in a way that you know, considers things beyond just a trend. Like it can't just be like, oh, because we're seeing like a huge uproar with the BLM movement um, that now we just have to have like, black model in a campaign or we need to you know include more races i just think that you know especially with you know younger generations who are becoming more activists they are definitely going to call a brand out so it's Mm -hmm. the time now to be more transparent and you know it's the responsibility to make people feel like they belong in their own skin and they're not just this kind of Tokenistic consumer that they've picked to cater one brand for, so to speak. So, I definitely think that, like, you know, we need a holistic view of, you know, the people who they're catering for's reality, whether they're able to speak to them or, you know, create diverse samples on tech. I mean, it was really interesting. Um, So, lockdown started, and, you know, beauty samples in person can't really be a thing anymore. So I I mean, I have some lipstick shades from Bobbi Brown and I was like, oh, okay, they're doing a virtual try on online for people at home. And so is Mac actually. And I, I have so many lipsticks from Mac as well. So I was like, let me just try this out and see how good it is. And I honestly think that if I had done this try-on thing and not gone to the store when I did, like, ages ago, I wouldn't have actually ended up buying the colours, as ridiculous as it sounds, because it looked so wrong on me. So I think that there's, you know, an additional level of the fact that if you're doing something with tech and online, you need to have a diverse sample. You can't just have, like, three people of colour in there. You know, you need to make sure that you're getting something that tries to make an algorithm less biased. So you need to have a lot more samples in there because like, even if you're a woman of color, like your lips as well, they could get a bit pigmented and whatnot. So it's just, it was just one of those things that baffled me that in 2020 with these, um, you know, with these online trial services, which are, which should be great now that we can't even really sample in person, really, that this was, you know, a disaster a little bit because it just didn't work it didn't do what it was meant to do
0: so the idea is that it um through like cgi kind of thing tries on different colors for you yeah through definitely. technology and then if you you know, hoping that you'll then think oh yeah i look great and then later you'll, or you'll order it from online or whatever
1: yeah exactly so it does it through like okay. then you just um, so you just turn your webcam on and then it does it through um, artificial intelligence and then you try it on. And then if you like it, you add it to your basket. And if you don't like it, then I then you don't. But um, I just tried so on it. It failed
0: on every front. for you.
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, I tried on shades that I had just because I was curious to see whether any kind of developments have been made. But I mean, sadly, not really.
0: And do you like those shades in real life?
1: Yeah, I love them. I wear them. I mean, you can't see me, but I'm wearing them right
0: now. Okay, so in real life, you love the product, but in terms of including you on this new technology, you didn't feel included.
1: No, not at all, which sucked. i not seen, yeah. (laughs) Because in real life, it looks so great. And, um, you know, these are brands that claim to cater for more skin tones, but I mean, online, Mm -hmm. they don't.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely um, going to be something to watch, as 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 you said, like the way that lockdown has trans forced businesses to transform the way that they communicate with their consumer base, and also just as technology develops in general. Um, you also touched on something that I have been quite resentful over um, since, as you said, the uproar around Black Lives Matter is how many brands are tokenistically, in my view, just posting, like, an old campaign image where they have one black model in it to try and look like they are an inclusive um, company. I mean, one example is uh, an Australian brand called Zimmerman, and they were called out, um, it was on Diet Prada that they kind of got, uh, like, cancelled, I guess, (laughs) um, where they refused to work with black models and any black models that did um, get sort of cast in their shows, they would mock about their natural hair and they wouldn't have any hairstylists that could cater to them. And then they would just be told, you know, just the most awful things about their natural selves. Um, And even in their mood boards, it said, it said stuff like in the negative, like don't be like X, Y, Z of a characteristic that was specifically, um uh to do with the black community so it was really offensive and cruel and then so they got called out they didn't actually respond to it um like internationally they didn't they didn't make an international statement even though it was being discussed um overseas from australia and now on their instagram they're just posting loads of pictures of black models wearing their clothes and it's just like how can you just be that out of touch, that insensitive that you just think that it's like a bandaid over a war wound, like that you can just post something on socials and not have done any of the work. Like that is a perfect moment to go, okay, I'm going to be quiet for a minute and I'm going to learn and I'll then come back and, and we can try and continue this conversation. But like, let me take a moment to do better instead they just carried on business as usual and their business as usual is appalling
1: oh yeah I mean there were so many brands even in the beauty space who did like a very similar thing and like hair salons that I saw that like you know where owners were being called out for being racist or not wanting to you know cater for different hair needs or Mm. and you know brands that don't actually have shades that include everyone and and using you know campaign images of the one person of color being very tokenistic I mean yeah I just feel like in this situation it's you know the brand's responsibility to learn how to support these you know communities and you know build out a new network whether they're doing more market research and whether they're actually, you know, um, wanting to, you know, hire people who can actually help them in these instances. I mean, even with things like Fashion Week, when I think about it, I mean, I mean, I've been backstage to loads of shows, but there's a huge, you know, lack of representation then and there. But for years, the fashion industry has been saying, you know, they want to hire more models of different races or genders and things like that. But I mean, it just doesn't really seem to be happening.
0: Yet. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. Um, so bringing it back to your trend forecasting. Yeah. Um, what I think, I feel like right now is a really interesting moment in history. I mean, we'll see as it continues to unfold, but with Corona, there's Mm -hmm. been kind of a pause and almost a recalibration of how we're going to move forward. And uh, companies, brands have been forced to reassess the way that they communicate with their customers and also how they provide for their customers. So it's been a really fast moment of transition and um, uh, development, I suppose. And simultaneously, you've had this uproar around the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's been a real focal point throughout lockdown, I think, this conversation around racism. So what's kind of coming through um, from your position of expertise that kind of is bringing uh, acknowledgement of the improvements that need to be made racially in this moment of flux, in this opportunity to change and develop from brand's perspectives
1: so from brand's perspectives I definitely think the first kind of learning is to not just I mean when BLM happened you know certain brands posted a black square and didn't follow it up and that was hugely problematic Mm. because it was just showing that okay I see you and I'm not going to do anything and I'm not going to go away and learn from it and read resources and understand kind of the history behind this so I think that that's kind of one thing that really, really needs to change. And it was great. That's that what
0: you- really pissed me off about Zimmerman. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I mean, okay, what they they didn't just not uh represent a full spectrum of society. They were they were actually racist in their sort of abusive nature. So it wasn't just like a lack, it was like a purposeful abuse in my book. And even in the face of that, of being called out on that, to not try, to not to, like, vocally try to do better, I just think is abhorrent. But even, I mean, actually, one that did well was L'Oreal, because I don't know if you saw the conversation um, around Monroe Bergdorf, who's a black transgender woman, Mm -hmm. and she was on on a board or, no, in a campaign a few years ago, and then she got uh, unceremoniously dropped for... Um, speaking out on something on a cause dear to her heart and through her sort of continuing to be really vocal about these matters and also calling L'Oreal out this year they've or recently they've um, brought her on to be a member of like the diversity board at L'Oreal and have actually a lot more influence of how the the brand the company then moves forward and so that was to me a good example of going we messed up, we acknowledge that, we apologise, and now we want to learn and do better moving forward. So I can't remember (laughs) why I started on this rant. But, um, yeah, I guess there's, like, there's two ways to go. And by posting the, the black square, as you said, and then not following it up, I think is really distasteful. So yeah, you you continue now. Sorry for butting in.
1: (laughs) Oh no, don't worry. I mean, it's super interesting to hear, you know, loads of different perspectives on this matter for sure. But I just think that, you know, with that, we kind of, I feel like, within fashion and beauty there's more than just the brand who's responsible i mean it's all aspects of it right it's like you know the influencers they decide to work with or the people they want to partner with it's also the responsibility of buyers and people in product development i mean there's a whole kind of sphere of things that feed in to the actual um industry here so i think that you know within this space it needs to kind of you kind of need to chart near and longer term commitments that are actually trackable like be honest be transparent say what you're going to do but follow through make sure that the you know your consumer group that you're catering for or that in general society as a whole can actually see oh wow they're actually you know making a positive change and i think that you know within within my agency and the kind of work I do, I always, you know, when I'm advising, you know, certain clients of mine and whatever, it's always important that we make sure that, you know, people, regardless of their gender, sexuality, and race, are represented in a way that's fair. And that if a brand does do something, they kind of follow through with their commitment. So if they are going to post, you know, something to do with, Um, you know with pride they're not going to do it as a one-off they're going to educate you and they're going to tell you okay this is how you can be an ally this is how Mm. you can work together with the community and not just be like okay cool I I decided to actually with pride I huge problem I have a huge problem with brands who just want to do like a pride collection and then do nothing else to follow it through Mm. yeah I mean definite pink washing going on as well you know so it's like how can I take that one step further how can I actually be inclusive because you know there are so many ways that you can be inclusive but it's about actually following it through and it's about you know Future proofing it in a way because you want to bring equal opportunities and you want to build a community, so in that way, you will kind of create these networks to help with that,
0: yeah, for sure. And while you were just talking about the different, uh, I guess, stakeholders in making this change, I also think that white people have a huge responsibility to kind of vote with their spending so choosing to buy products from companies that you know are seeking to be diverse and inclusive and um, representative of real society <laughs> um, and not just buying from whoever we deem convenient or is as our, as our favorite just because you know we can buy from any brand because we're considered norm, but I think it's really important that we collectively, I'm referring to fellow white people here, um, you know, do a little research and dig a little deeper and and have a look under the surface of what values a brand really has before we um, invest by buying their products because we, you know, we have really strong purchasing power and if we boy, not, not boycott, but you know, kind of boycott, um, companies that are hurtful to different demographics than our own, then I feel like it kind of is forcing people to continue to wake up and and do that unlearning. And it's interesting what you said about um, Pride as well. It's really uh, important from my perspective as well that companies don't, as you said, sort of jump on a bandwagon, tick that box of what is uh culturally relevant in a moment and and essentially take from a community because they might um you know do a little rainbow collection or whatever during pride month and so they may receive uh sort of increased um purchasing from the l g b t i q community but if they're just taking by receiving that money essentially. Um, and then not giving back, I think that's really harmful as well. So not just being inclusive internally, but then also paying literal money forward to help communities that, you know, are minorities and that need that added support through, you know, whether it's um, mental health charities that are directed towards specific uh, minority groups, like you know, for the LGBTIQ community, as we're talking about pride, I think it's really important that they kind of put their money where their mouth is as well.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I just think that, you know, within that space, if you're not willing to do something actionable to actually help the community, then that's hugely problematic, because that's Mm. literally the biggest tick boxy exercise ever. I mean, it's just yeah. a marketing ploy at the end of the day. Yeah. Like I um I spoke to Grazia in Italy like Um, last month it was and we were kind of talking about you know what makeup means to the LGBTQIA plus community and we were also talking about what brands need to do to kind of foster the ideas of like self-discovery and feeling comfortable in your own skin and you know how how you can do that because at the end of the day we need to remember that especially with you know younger generations now they are not being afraid to call out brands so it's how mm. you can power up that sense of purpose and have something actually thought-provoking and make people feel like they belong in their own skin at the same time
0: for sure and I feel like there's so much creativity within these sort of smaller groups that are a bit more like underground maybe so I watched on the weekend um Laverne Cox has done a documentary called Disclosure about the history of transgender people being represented um in film and tv and watch there was a there was a section um in the documentary where it looked at voguing and ballroom and how that went from being this like super underground, like amazingly creative and out there um sort of community. And then it got I mean, appropriated for want of a better word, um, by Madonna and then suddenly kind of got in her Vogue video and then kind of got like had this sort of mainstream moment. And I think, I don't know, there's there's a real um, fine line between taking from a culture and having a cultural exchange. And I think there's a real risk that these companies, maybe some of them have their heart in the right place and are trying to do better, but there's gotta be an exchange. Otherwise it is appropriation. and you know, catering for different cultures. I understand that that would be the goal, but you can't, you can't appropriate and you can't just be really simplistic um, in that venture. So how, how, while you're talking to Grazia Italy and kind of as you're directing brands, how would you best advise that they strike to have a cultural exchange rather than, I mean, even like it could come across as patronizing, speaking to certain groups, in uh, a really like simplistic way, what is the best strategy for a brand in your opinion?
1: So I actually think co-creation is kind of the key here, whether you, you Mm. know, you do your market research and you interview people or whether you, you know, ask for their opinions on social when you're developing a product. I think that is quite literally the best way to do it because you're talking to real people people who know what they want what they like and what they need and with that you'd be able to take your product forward in a way that you know doesn't make it seem you know tokenistic I know we've said that about a million times today but that (laughs) is but that is quite literally you know a huge problem with the industry especially in terms of you know when wanting to be inclusive or you know in terms of co-creation i just think that if we don't actually speak to the people who want who you want to create the product for and if you don't have people in your company already as well to kind of help with that process it's just i mean it's just not really going to work properly
0: yeah and and avoiding elevating one voice from a community like I'm, I have to be honest I'm not really up to date with my YouTube stars but I know that there are some like super gender fluid um makeup stars on YouTube YouTube and they'll mm-hmm. be given this huge platform and they've got a huge following and I, I get why that's advantageous for a brand to connect with someone that's got like a million kajillion subscribers um but if you're just focusing on like one or two voices and it's really not it's still not inclusive because you can't have one person speak on behalf of any group. So, yeah, you're so right. That that collaborative effort is definitely the way to go.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I just think that even when I think about, you know, within my own culture and being Indian, like I noticed this when I actually was doing this research paper that in, you know, press in the West, like the only Indian people you kind of see are like Priyanka Chopra and Deepika Padukone, both who of which are, you know, really big Bollywood stars who made it into Hollywood, but they only look, they both look different, but it's still that same kind of look. And if I was a brand yeah. and I was going off, you know, what I'm seeing here, that that's literally not going to help me cater to, you know, all the different um, Indian women in general.
0: Of course. I mean, I always say this, like within, the white race we are so different from one another there are so many different types of white people so why on earth would you then think that in huge countries like india that there's going to be like everyone's going to fall under the bracket of one superstar <laughs> like that that's representative re- representative of an entire country it's just it's crazy
1: no, it's absolutely nuts when I think about it. I mean, and even with things like that, like like I was saying earlier, if someone wants a spotlight, someone different, they'll take the most extreme version of that and they'll be like, okay, yeah. so that's it's one end, which is the end, the very conventional, well, not conventional, but like Bollywood star and these two stars in particular. And then there's yeah. the really, really extreme end. And then you can't really, I mean, personally, you wouldn't really be able to connect the dots you know, and how those fit together.
0: Yeah, it doesn't paint a full picture. It's too narrow-minded.
1: Yeah, I mean, it totally is. So,
0: who is doing it well?
1: Um... That is a really good question, and um, I actually think there are a few brands that I've seen that have been doing things really well. Um, One is Cole Creatives, and they're an inclusive makeup brush brand who caters for people within all abilities, races, and genders. And um, it's actually my sister's brand, funnily enough, not to plug her in here, but um, (laughs) I actually think, you know, the way that she's done it has been incredible. So when she created her last collection, it was for people with, it can be used by you and I, and it can also be used by someone with motor disabilities. And she kind of went on to kind of learn, you know, how you know what the best grip would be and how would mm. be able to kind of you know bend a brush in a certain way and it would work for you and how it wouldn't so the brushes actually fully bend and you can actually wow. use them so they they stamp your makeup on. So if I want a perfectly winged liner there's like a um like a little triangle brush that you can just use and stamp it on and that's it and it's done and it's perfectly you know it works perfectly that. well. <laughs> so, that's, that. so that's like an example of you know a good brand that went out there worked with the community and then kind of understood it better and then she also works with the trans community a lot um and helps them you know use makeup to like make themselves look feminine or more masculine and does like workshops all around the world for them as well so that's kind of like all the proceeds goes towards her kind of charity arm and that's that's how it kind of works so I think oh, your sister
0: sounds like a rock star This is amazing I
1: know it is she's also my business partner in the agency so we um <laughs> tag, tag team um we have but- to
0: send me her um sort of business info and I'll put it in the show notes as well so everyone can have a little look
1: oh yeah definitely and um another kind of brand that's doing really well is this brand called um for Indian women in particular it's called live tinted um and they basically they create these um it's like a stick essentially but it's like it can be used and like on your lips and on your um, cheeks and it can be mm. used, even cover up dark circles in a way so it's quite cool because it was you know the founder from you know when I was researching it found that she was severely underrepresented so then she created this to make it cater for you know Indian women in particular and women of color um but I even think that from like a um skincare perspective I actually find that a lot trickier to think of an example of like an amazing brand I think there's still you know a huge gap in the market in that front because You know, there won't be a lot of brands who can cater for, you know, hyperpigmentation and things like that. Or, oh my goodness, sunscreen, which is super important for you. Mm -hmm. And then you have this like massive, I mean, speaking from personal experiences, white cast on your face. And it's just so bizarre. But I mean, it just hasn't really made the, I mean, there have been developments in it. Like there's, I'm Sun, I think, is one of the brands. I know it's like, I think that's what it's called. I'm I'm not sure about that. But there have been developments in that space. But I still think there's a long way to go.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm kind of just starting to take care, more care of my skin in the, in the sun. And I've got a few sort of base face sunscreen that you're supposed to put on under your makeup. And they're quite... I would say on the higher end of the market and I literally can't use them because even for me who is white skinned they as you said they just leave like this mask of white cake left on your face and yeah I don't even know how you're supposed to use that but um there's a long way to go so are there any mainstream brands like big commercial brands that you think have hit the nail on the head or is everyone's still got a long way to go I feel like when I when I read about it um what we talked about Mac not doing that great earlier but Mac has been kind of a front runner in terms of uh inclusivity and they've definitely um included I feel like I'm just using the same vocabulary over and over (laughs) but um included I know a lot of people from the LGBTIQ community um for before like drag became popular in in the mainstream so do you think they do well
1: or Um yeah I mean to be honest I do love MAC and I think they're great but I think the problem is within the beauty industry it was like you know MAC did their 50 shades then Rihanna did mm. 50 shades of foundation then everyone else that needs to do 50 shades of foundations like Huda Beauty or whoever it might be has to just copy it and I think that's a problem right they don't actually holistically think about anything else it's kind Mm. of like you know Here's 50 Shades of Foundations. Okay, cool. I'm catering to everyone and Rihanna did it, so I'm going to do it too and everybody's going to do it. But I just think that there's so much more than that. And yeah, with MAC, they're great with who they've used in their campaigns and, you know, the amount of lipstick shades they have, which is unreal. And same with Bobbi Brown, actually, they've done a great job. But I just, I still don't think, I don't think it's enough. Because I just think Mm. that off the bat, like, even with brands like, you know, Charlotte Tilbury, I mean, I remember going to Selfridges, trying on all of their concealer shades, and they're just too orange. So it's like, are you really trying? Do you actually have the sample? So I think that, I mean, there still is a lot of work that needs to be done, to be honest.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I don't know, it's a crazy concept to me that it's not catered for but i know that's a huge reality and um hopefully one day we'll be able to just say consumers rather than consumers of color or black consumers or trans consumers hopefully we'll be able to just say consumers and it won't be we won't be just talking about separate demographics or markets everyone will be catered to
1: yeah definitely fingers crossed fingers crossed I mean in terms of the indie beauty space like um independent brands they're doing a lot better like I know there's Uoma Beauty which is huge and um they are this incredible brand and they've catered for all skin tones, but specifically focusing on you know black women and it I mean the the strides they've made in the industry are huge and I just think that that is another really good example that people can actually learn from because the founder is a black woman and she noticed this problem and so they're definitely I feel like makeup way uh, is ahead of the game and I feel like we're slowly starting to recognize these things but there's yeah. you know huge huge rooms for improvement
0: it's interesting that you raised um the the indie brands doing well so I read um recently about hair care for black women which is obviously completely different to hair care for European hair and where some of the big players are now Waking up and realizing that that's uh, a market that they want to cater to, because there's been so many smaller brands doing it, independent brands, um, because no one else was. Um, they are now almost hijacking the business that those indie brands were receiving. Because how can these small, small fry guys like compete with the heavy hitters? So it's a very it's a very I I don't know what the answer is there but very complex um problem in a way that like we want obviously the big guys to to listen and to cater for everyone but if that's then diminishing the opportunity for uh you know the smaller um companies to continue to have a successful business if it's kind of eclipsing them um from the market then that's a problem in itself
1: definitely and I think that's the thing with the beauty market right it's probably one of the most saturated ones because you can literally find a product equivalent in I don't know like hundreds and thousands of brands and the way that indie brands can kind of stand out from the crowd is you know different things like building their own communities getting their um, you know, their customer base and fan base to be really loyal to them as well, which is so tricky because, you know, people go for convenience or they go for, you know, a packaging that might look better or whatever it might be. Like, it's so hard to kind of grasp that. And, you know, press coverage helps as well. But then, you know, do, do all brands have the opportunity for that, which is, I mean, it's a very, very tricky space to navigate
0: for sure for sure well I guess stay tuned and see I I do feel like in many ways even though 2020 has been a really really crappy year it is quite a formative and momentous year so hopefully people well companies will have been doing some unlearning and they will do better from 2021 and onwards
1: Definitely, they do. And they need to kind of educate themselves as well. I just think that people need to take a more holistic and integrated view of who the real consumer is.
0: Agreed. Tisha, let me ask you the final quickfire questions that I ask everyone on the show. So what is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning?
1: The first thing I do in the morning is literally, so I have like two little chihuahuas. So the first thing I do is make sure they're okay and feed them like every morning.
0: That's so cute. What are their names?
1: Tia and Dahlia
0: oh i love that well say hi to tia and dahlia from me i will
1: do i know that's not exactly the most inspirational answer but it's honest
0: (laughs) yeah honesty that's what we want um don't worry it's better than check instagram which is most people's anyway um what action feels most like prayer to you and by that i mean what thing that you do makes you feel most connected to your best self
1: Think the thing that makes me feel connected to my best self is when I do like Reiki and crystal healing. So I'm actually a practitioner in in both of them. And I trained in Reiki when I was ten years old with my mom. Yeah, we literally did it together. So I definitely say that that definitely when I'm in that zone and I'm able to practice on myself or others, that's when I feel like my best self because I'm, you know, more in tune with my spiritual side, everything kind of slows down a lot more for me, um mm. even if it is helping someone, you're just in that space and in that positive radiant energy
0: for sure i think personally, I think helping someone else is the most spiritual thing you can do, so yeah, I get that a lot. that's so cool
1: yeah it's uh, it's different <laughs> yeah.
0: i've done I've done some reiki in the past um i I was really sick for a few years, and my friends are Reiki. Um, practitioner and she did a couple of sessions with me and it was pretty incredible actually like what sort of was released and what came up for me in the in the coming days it was yeah a really interesting experience yeah
1: it's definitely a very powerful tool and actually highly recommend that you know, Whatever the problem is, if it's like physical illness or mental illness or just feeling a bit off in general, it's so like the best thing to do because everything comes out in a way that you wouldn't imagine, mm. if you know what I mean. Like I did like with one one of my friends, actually, I did a healing session on her, She is really bad anxiety and it was this distant healing session during covid actually and when I did um something over her heart center because she was so like emotionally blocked it was even though I wasn't there with her I could feel it Mm. and it was super intense but yeah it definitely has a different way of things coming out for everyone Yeah. yeah amazing
0: Okay, what is the most audacious thing you've ever done?
1: Oh my gosh, that is such a hard question. <laughs> um, I actually think moving to the UK, because I literally like never even visited.
0: Yeah, that's pretty bold.
1: Before moving. So I definitely say that like, you know, even though it was for university and coming here, you know, immersing myself in a, completely new culture and Mm. kind of having to like making friends and kind of start over in a way was definitely yeah I'd say that for sure
0: yeah I mean I met met people in Oz that um when I lived there that moved without sort of checking it out first and I just found that I mean impressive in many aspects but also kind of bewildering. like I don't know if I could take that leap of faith I'm not sure I don't know It's never, it's never um, been a choice they've had to make, but yeah, I'm sure it it took a lot of, um, I want to say courage, but not just courage, but like, I guess, I guess a sense of commitment to your decision.
1: Yeah, definitely. And the fact that I'm still here, almost seven years on.
0: (laughs) It's proof it was the right move. Definitely. That's good. So what commitment are you going to make to yourself for this coming week?
1: So for the coming week, despite the kind of heat wave that we're experiencing <laughs> at the moment, I think I'm going to go back to working out like four times a week, like before I used to do that. And then like, I feel like as lockdown's gone on, it's kind of become less and less. So I think I'm definitely going back to that commitment. Also, because you just feel it's just a great like release at the end of the day or at the start of the day to make yourself feel refreshed and energized but it's also mm. a bit nuts doing it at home with the with the dogs yeah. crawling all over me <laughs> but I will make that commitment for the next week
0: I've been going for lots of long walks in the common and I've seen loads of people doing like full gym workouts out on the grass which I think is great so take it to the streets man oh <laughs> my gosh running. yeah
1: totally they'll definitely <laughs> I don't think they'll be able to come with me with that with that bit um but in the house. So definitely they're all over it.
0: I <laughs> love that. Okay. When was the last time you felt fearful and how did you handle it?
1: Um, I think the last time I felt fearful was definitely when I was um thinking about going home to Hong Kong and, you know, with this was kind of well, it's still it was when now they're like on the third wave of COVID. So it's well. it's just been that whole fear of, you know, with the way that things are there at the moment and not being able to see my family. I think that's definitely a thing because normally I go home like three times a year. So it's definitely something that's totally different this year and almost uh, not having that security blanket right then and there for me to kind of go to for a true kind of escape, I guess.
0: Yeah, I get that. That's hard. Well, I hope you get to see your family soon. Um, yes. And I guess that, that pulls in quite nicely to the last question, which is where is your happy
1: place? Um, is it, I think this is an interesting question because I don't actually have a place. I know that sounds so bizarre but I think it's like when I'm with people who I'm closest to so if I'm with my really close friends and my cousins or like the rest of my family really that's kind of where I feel is my happy place because we could be anywhere and we could be having the best time yeah
0: I think I don't think that's bizarre at all I think that's um, probably very relevant for a lot of people that it's not about the bricks and mortar that you're within it's who you're in them with definitely um, yeah I feel you on that level
1: because before I would have said Hong Kong hands down but I think you know lockdown has actually got me thinking that like if some of my family back home like my parents if they were to kind of come here I would feel equally as home because they would be around me so I think being fearful about not actually being able to you know go back for you know a prolonged period of time versus maybe if they were able to come here it would feel the same yeah
0: that's cool well my wish for you is that you get to see your family sooner rather than later and of course want to give you a huge huge thank you for sharing your wisdom your insight and importantly your time with us so yeah thanks so much Disha and I hope you keep cool this weekend.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to speak with you.
0: I hope you learned as much as I did during this episode. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what surprised you, what disappointed you, what allowed you to remain hopeful. And I just wanted to say that I... I'm going to do a little recap episode soon so that you can have a quick and easy three minute run through of all the episodes today and then maybe if there's some that you haven't listened to yet, one might pique your interest and you can go back and and catch up. Also just wanted to say to anyone that is still listening to this point, I have a very exciting guest next week so I do hope you'll plug in them too. For now, take care, keep cool, and I'll talk to you next week.